Hey, everybody. Welcome to the JDO Show. I'm your host, JDO, and I'm back with Mr. Rob Volmar. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? Man, I'm doing pretty good. It is early June in El Paso, Texas, which means it's extremely hot. Um, I was trying to prepare for this uh, sort of Rocky montage style by doing various sundry things to prepare myself for the heat. So for the past month or two, I've been driving in my car with the windows rolled up with the AC off uh, just to get used to feeling like I'm in a sauna. Um, I get, you get child protective services called on yourself. <laughs> There's a Somebody's great video on uh, YouTube that's called uh, Babies Are Cowards. And it's this <laughs> guy who's in a car and he's, he's pro- it, you know, it's a silly video, but he's proving that you know, you can leave a dog or a baby in, in a hot car. And he's like, I'm going to sit in this car for 40 minutes. And it's just him progressively, you know, falling apart while he's in this car. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, so it's, it's hot as hell. How about, um, how about where you're at? It's been a, it's been a warm, warming trend this week. Um, I think we've gotten into the upper nineties. I've been, you know, I just put in, uh, a lot of uh, garden beds, and, and uh, you know the the method that I use to build them. There's only about uh, three inches of topsoil, so I'm just having to really stay on top of those, make sure they stay moisturized uh, until they have a uh, a cover, you know, like a mm-hmm. ground cover mm-hmm. on them. So, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, it's like I, it's like I always say, there's there's always good news waiting in the garden, even when it's a problem to solve. So, that's right. That's yeah. You're um, I've been getting to hear sort of your your garden adventures, and I'm very jealous. But I will be transporting myself from El Paso to Oklahoma post haste, and when that happens, I'm gonna try to catch up with you, get some uh, plants growing. Yeah, man. I got I got the I got your seed. Heck, yeah. Care of. yeah, dude, I'm looking for, I'm, I don't want to get too off track, but I am, I am genuinely excited about that. But, um, well, I am not ashamed to tell the world that Norman, Oklahoma has been a lesser place without you in it. And, uh, as part of the national stimulus program, we need to get you back in Norman so that, uh, <laughs> so that all of you right in the world. I was talking to a friend last night on the phone, and I said something very similar, mostly that Norman hasn't been the same without me. No, I'm just kidding. No, I've, I've been, I was talking to them about how um, my writing sort of dropped off as soon as I moved to Portland. So I spent three years in Portland, and it's going to have been about three years in El Paso, two and a half. Um, but yeah, as soon as I left Oklahoma, everything just sort of stopped and there's an interesting conversation to be had there about uh place and creativity um and place is like an extension of your interior world and the sort of relationality between the inside of a person's brain and the inside of their particular geographic perimeter um another book that we're going to get to kingsley here in a second but i've been reading uh, uh-huh. michelle michelle Serre's uh a book called Malfeasance, which is about pollution and how people sort of create um, throughout history have created, you know, boundaries and how 
boundaries, it goes back to the word pagus, which is where we get pagan and also peace. Um, so a pagus was a piece of land that uh, essentially um, delineated different different tribes, right? Um, but within that, he talks about, you know, birds, how birds make messes in their nest and, and people make messes around them to sort of delineate their their territory. And that's, I think he's kind of making this point, but maybe I, I just extrapolated from what he was saying. It's kind of, you know, our interior is full of bacteria and strange organisms that have set up shop inside of us. And so to expand that one level out to where we live, um, where we kind of infect our areas with our, with our different little uh, effluvia, right? And I think that um, to bring it all back to, to Oklahoma, that Oklahoma's just got my smell on it. You know, does that make sense? It's, yeah, it's, no, it's, you, a, it's you, a marked territory, uh, psychogeographically marked with my psychogeographic urine. You know, I just think of it also as like this is the soil in which you matured and you're going to be happier when you're planted back in it. Mm -hmm. Not to say yeah. that you couldn't survive elsewhere, but uh, this is uh, this is this is your place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I'm super excited. But let's get into the book that we're talking about this week. It is called In the Dark Places of Wisdom. It's by a gentleman named Peter Kingsley. He might be knighted. He might be Sir Peter Kingsley. Um, <laughs> if he wasn't before he wrote this book, he should definitely be now. He should definitely be now. So this book came out in 1999. What attracted me to Kingsley's writing overall, because I, have, uh, I did something extremely rare and spent way too much money, $70, on his... Uh, Newest book, Catafalque, because it's him talking about uh, a lot of the concepts that he brings up in uh, Dark Places of Wisdom, but with relation to Carl Jung um, and, and depth psychology. Yeah, I, um, felt, I felt that that undercurrent mm -hmm. uh, in this book, you know, um, but go ahead. So what attracted me to Kingsley in the first place was that it appears to me that he did not start writing these books until... He had spent uh, sort of a lifetime in in study, and there's an interesting sort of parallel between that fact and the things that he actually writes about, right? Uh, concepts of being quiet for long periods of time, contemplation. Um, so I think that with that in mind, could you give us a summary of the thesis of this? It's a very short book. And I, I don't think it's one of those that would be that's too hard to summarize. So do you think that you could tell us about it? Sure. Um, cool. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so this, you know, this book has got quite a quite a few moving parts to it. Um, there's there's kind of a there's there's kind of a uh, historical argument that's being made. Uh, there's kind of a um, spiritual argument that's being made. Um, and <clears throat> so, you know, the, the, the crux of the biscuit is that, um, you know, for the past 50 years or so, uh, that there's been a lot of um, 
attention paid by Westerners to Eastern philosophies, specifically because there is a there's an important wisdom teaching that has not made it uh, through our, for lack of a better term, like our culturally indigenous uh, wisdom traditions, European uh, wisdom traditions that, um, and so the, you know, the core of, of his argument begins from the place that as long as we are sort of relying on these um, translated traditions from the East that we're just going to keep flailing about. Um, mm -hmm. And so the, and then, you know, the secondary argument there is that we don't need uh, to look to those traditions because we have one of our own. And then he sort of goes about um, some historical detectiving to um, lay the groundwork for what that tradition is, where it came from, um, what does it entail, and why don't we know that it exists? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are a lot of questions that he answers there, and something, listeners, if you decide to end up reading this book, um, I thought it was sort of funny because it's a very short book, but a lot of the book is spent... Um, sort of telling you how, how amazing and fantastic what he's about to tell you is. Um, <laughs> that's sort of a style that he carries through all of his books. Neither you nor there. I just thought, I just think it's really cute. And I thought that I would mention it because, you know, it's like, I'm going to tell you something that hasn't been talked about for 2000 years. And when you learn it, you're going to say, holy cow, that's something that hasn't been, you know, anyway. Um, so basically what you said about him, uh, talking about this difference between like the Eastern and, and Western traditions is super, super interesting to me because what I got out of this book was basically like this, the story of Pythagoras in particular was really interesting to me, but looks like we can sort of, he does some sort of almost archeological work at first with uh with geography so what's he kind of doing there with like place so <clears throat> i think that one of the cornerstones of his argument and it's it's a structural feature that he doesn't actually like get to this for a long time in the book mm -hmm. but, I, but i feel like moving this to the front of the conversation is is very helpful because he is saying that the the western tradition as we have received it um is the athenian tradition in specific and that that athens was um kind of a a, a late cultural uh hegemon that squashed a lot of really vital things uh, and what it wasn't able to squash it incorporated and demasculated uh, so that it was no longer useful 
And so with, um, you know, with the book, uh, you know, it's very focused on um, uh, Parmenides and starts off kind of um, centering him uh, as as a member of the uh, oh how how many times are we going to mispronounce this the Phocaeans uh, sure the Phocaeans mm-hmm. and and he makes an argument that even though when we sort of pick them up historically in relation to Parmenides in southern Italy that they are actually uh, part of a culture uh, that is more tied to the western coast of Turkey uh, and and directly in proximity to uh, Samos, which is, of course, where Pythagoras was from. And more broadly, he's making the argument that the Phocaeans, um, because of where they were from, um, were participants in uh, that mystical tradition that we often associate with these Eastern cultures, Mm -hmm. Um, most specifically with the Persians, uh, but more distantly with India and also China. And so the argument, you know, as he's putting it forward is that this tradition that we'll we'll talk about, um, it isn't like, it, it isn't an Eastern tradition. That's the first misconception that we have, that if we, you know, look at stillness and quietness and uh, incubation, which, you know, we'll talk more about, um, that, that we, we can clearly see those things in the Eastern traditions that people are drawn to, but that it's actually a human tradition and it's only in the Western theater where the uh, Athenian uh, hegemony um, sort of uh, choked it off. That yeah. that we that we have that absence because of their uh, skill at uh, rewriting history to right. to to suit their narratives. And it seems like uh, Kingsley puts that at the feet of Plato, if I remember correctly, that yeah. there's a, a Plato sort of rewrites this history and talks about uh, uh, patricide. And he kind of goes into how serious of a thing that would have been for, for Plato to write that, even as a rhetorical device, how sort of taboo it would have been to to put things that way. And of course, what I'm referring to is in one of Plato's books, which I can't remember, um, he sure. essentially, what's that? I'm sorry. I'm pretty sure it was the one that's called Parmenides. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Who? I mean, who knows, really, I think. <laughs> but yeah, no, but he essentially uh, destro- like attempts to uh, paint Parmenides as um, foolish, I guess you could say. Yeah, and, and, to, and, and achieving that effect by intentionally distorting what he had to say right and right. so it's it's a uh, it's what Eugene s Robinson might call a, a satanic maneuver 
mm. because it 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 literally takes the essence of Parmenides' teaching, which Plato would have known well, and presented it as basically its diametric opposite mm -hmm. uh, in order to destroy his legacy. And, you know, in the context of Plato, where he was living in a historical context where a lot of people knew about Parmenides and they knew what he was teaching, you know, that may have that may he may not have intended that to be quite as absolute as it was, but because um, Plato ha has such an oversized role in the West's sort of philosophical understanding of itself, um, that the things that he said then were picked up by Aristotle, who you know added on his own you know distortions, and so you know it. Uh, until Parmenides' actual like legacy was just erased, and and in fact becomes illegible uh, to us in the modern context without this, um, you know, really elaborate recreation that Kingsley goes through in the book. Yeah, and one of the places that he starts to do that is with a poem. Um, and I have the poem here, and perhaps it might be helpful to just read it. Um, it's very, I thought that this poem was particularly cool. It's uh, very sort of mystical and strange, but it sort of, it details uh, Parmenides' journey into the underworld, which will become important when we talk about things like incubation and lying down in caves like animals. Um, so here's the poem. The mares that carry me as far as longing can reach rode on. Once they had come and fetched me onto the legendary road of the divinity that carries the man who knows through the vast and dark unknown. And on I was carried as the mares, aware just where to go, kept carrying me, straining at the chariot, and young women led the way. And the axle and the hubs let out the sound of a pipe blazing from the pressure of the two well-rounded wheels at either side as they rapidly led on. Young women, girls, daughters of the sun who had left the mansions of night for the light and pushed back the veils from their faces with their hands. There are the gates of the pathways of night and day, held fast in place between the lintel above and, and a threshold of stone. And they reach up into the heavens filled with the gigantic doors, and the keys that now open, now lock, are held fast by justice, she who always demands exact returns. And with soft, seductive words, the girls cunningly persuaded her to push back immediately just for them the bar that bolts the gates. And as the doors flew open, making the bronze axles with their pegs and nails spin, now one, now the other, in their pipes they created a gaping chasm. Straight through and on the girls held fast their course for the chariot and horses, straight on down the road. And the goddess welcomed me kindly and took my right hand in hers, and spoke these words as she addressed me. Welcome, young man, partnered by immortal charioteers, reaching our home with the mares that carry you. For it was no hard fate that sent you traveling this road, so far away from the beaten track of humans, but rightness and justice. And what's needed is for you to learn all things, both the unshaken heart of persuasive truth and the opinions of mortals, 
in which there's nothing that can truthfully be trusted at all. But even so, this too you will learn, how beliefs based on appearance ought to be believable as they travel all through all there is. Pretty dope little poem. I like it. It's so it's notable um, as as the kind of work that it is. You know, Parmenides uh, in other contexts is you know is thought of as being you know like the early um, you know pre-Socratic philosophers uh, who you know were trying to sort of work out the um, you know the fundamental nature of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and Plato even criticizes him for the fact that he he writes his philosophy as poetry, uh, whereas you know the dialogues are more like a more like theater. You know, Platonic mm-hmm. dialogues are are presented more like theater. Um, and uh, you know, Kingsley talks about uh, that. And and as you were reading that, what I was reminded of more than anything was the um, kind of the Kabbalistic tradition of path working, where hmm. you you know if you're you know uh, working on a particular path, that that it there is sort of a set of symbols that accompany that particular um, spiritual landscape. And so part of your magical process is um, in visualizing those symbols and specifically to kind of um, tune you into the right frequency. Mm-hmm. And so all of the, the, the specific details that he gives about who it is that's doing the leading, you know, what is the path like? What is the place that you arrive look like? Who is waiting for you there? Like all of those things, um, you know, it, it may have not worked for Plato, but it was very familiar to me um, as sort of like dialing in the frequency of the specific, you know, um, place that he's trying to get to. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that so basically what I'm hearing from that is that you're you're sort of seeing that it's this tradition of sort of images that the the images themselves sort of un, unlock ways of understanding that are perhaps like not intelligible, right? That are kind of not yeah. meant to be not meant to be sort of vocalized, but just sort of understood. Yeah, you 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 acquire the wisdom by walking the path. Yeah, right. And and it's not that you uh, you know think think about the thing until it's like, oh, this is something everyone would understand. Like you walk the path and then the wisdom is given to you uh, mm-hmm. as a result of your of your efforts. And so yeah. it's very interesting also that, you know, if you go through and look at the uh, the imagery in that is so uh, so feminine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You have mares, you have the handmaidens of the sun you have justice, um, and, uh, you know, and Kingsley makes this point in the book that, you know, we don't, we don't know much about Foucault, um, 
we don't know as much about Phokea as we know about other places. But one place that we do know a lot about is Samos, which was, you know, is, is an island located in exactly the same place, which was, uh, you know, a a Hera cult. Like that, that was the dominant religion of Samos was the worship of Hera. Mm-hmm. And there, and he even mentions at some point in the book that, um, you know, the Athenians uh, were um, uh, among the Greeks. They were some of the most sort of rigidly paternalistic to the point of misogyny mm-hmm. um, uh, city states in terms of the, the culture there. And so it's no surprise to me that Plato finds uh, Parmenides um, teachings to be uh, repellent mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because you know uh, because women are repellent and uh, I don't I wouldn't be the first person to suggest that uh, most of his writing is uh, is soaked mm-hmm. in misogyny and yeah. so not surprising to me that this vision uh where um you know it's it's so feminine in the way that it's that it's constructed uh would just would just be that would just be repellent to him yeah it's calling to mind leonard schlain right a a book that you showed me to you showed me a long time ago long long time ago the alphabet versus the goddess i think it was called yeah but that um that book sort of in painstaking detail that's the thesis of the entire book is that essentially things and by things i mean mythology and wisdom and spirituality started off as primarily feminine and in fact a lot of our words that we have are for different parts of land are if you trace them back far enough they usually mean things like womb or vagina or vulva um and then sort of over time as this sort of um, word-based. It's very, it's very important too that that words have something to do with this as well, which dovetails interestingly with our Zerzan conversation a few months ago. Um, but once words start coming out and and rhetoric starts happening, it brings with it this kind of violence against image and poetry, and and it's easy to destroy because. By its nature, um, you know, the writings of, of, of Plato were easier to preserve necessarily than the more uh, experiential teachings of, say, Parmenides, right? Or Pythagoras or you Socrates. Know, Socrates, Socrates exactly. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Uh, it's, always, so, it's always interesting to me that like all of these all of the foundational teachings of all of these systems that you look at, none of them were ever written down. We don't have a single written word by the Buddha. We don't have a single written word uh, from Jesus Christ. We don't have a single written word from Socrates. We have what other people said about what they said. And you, you may approach that on one way to say, well, you know, that was just a, that was just a historical hiccup. That was just a thing that happened. It's like, yes, but here we have these three dominant, you know, um, uh, lineages 
of teaching where the the person who started the thing clearly did not place value in writing down what they knew mm-hmm. like and 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 it's not I don't feel like it's much of an exercise of the imagination to take that the next step and say uh, that they were actively like they made a decision that that was not how that was to be done. Right. And I think that Kingsley in particular, what he does in his books, this one in particular, is then he has to work from inference and he has to sort of go on this really fun uh, archaeological game of inference. And at times he can seem a bit frustrated, obviously, because when you're dealing with scientific communities, um, a sci- there are elements of a scientific community that isn't going to be satisfied until you find a quote-unquote legitimate document that says this is, you know, this lineage connects to this, and here here's the whole explanation, right? Um, and what Kingsley is saying is that in order to reassemble these kind of mystery traditions, inference is a necessary part of that, and sort of experiencing it for himself. He talks about going to uh, uh, Velia, right? Places like that and seeing these places for himself. And there's kind of a sense that you can go with him in this book, which I do. Um, But if you don't, it's important to question how, how you can reconcile that with the fact that traditions for the longest time were experience based and, and not, not written down. Right. If you're, if you're sort of unable to feel in your rational brain, you know, this has been my, my thing for a little bit now, but the, the spirit of geometry versus the spirit of finesse, right? <laughs> Which was, um, I recently read in a Gary Luckman book. I can never remember who, who said that initially. I want to say it's Baudelaire, but I'm not sure. Um, but the spirit of geometry is this idea that everything can be rationally explained, and it's how we get, you know, things like... Um, mathematics to a certain extent because math even math gets to a point where it's mystical um but the spirit of finesse is the way that i describe it is it's the kind of sense of understanding a joke when you hear the punchline to a joke and you say oh i get that you don't have to diagram it for anybody like why that thing is funny you can just do it um so a, a real conflict that we see here um with introduced with Plato is this spirit of geometry that he more represents and the spirit of finesse that's represented by Parmenides. And it just gets wiped out because it can't defend itself. You know what I mean? Cause it's, it's, it's ephemeral. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting too, because, um, so as I mentioned at the beginning, like this book is trying to do a lot of things at the same time. And I, I, you know, if I, if I had a frustration with it, it's that it, it sort of tries to play um, the who knows real history game. Right. So like, here's all this false history that's been presented for thousands of years, but I'm going to present you with the real history. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as a as a, uh, I would describe myself as a an amateur historian. Um, 
I feel like this was not a a great playing field to, for him to be working on. I don't feel mm-hmm. like that's where his his strengths are as a writer, even though it's really interesting. Like, all of this is very interesting. But there's a lot of times through the course of the book where he's making claims. Like, mm-hmm. this this thing is like this. And it's yeah. like, why should I believe you? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. Like, he was like, you know, according to so-and-so... And, you know, like the book does have some fairly extensive references at the end, mm-hmm. but they're but they're not really like notated in any way as you go through the book. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that he's he's asking you to to take a lot on, you know, he's making an appeal to authority. Right. You know, it's like I, I, I know a lot about these things and I'm going to tell you some stuff and you should believe me. Mm-hmm. And and I'm totally good with that. Uh, but. But when you are presenting a historical narrative, like there's a there's a methodology for that, and mm-hmm. uh, and I don't feel like that he uh, really meets the threshold of the methodology, and mm-hmm. so sometimes like as I was reading through, I was like, you know, like I. I see what you're saying, but I also feel like that if I were given access to the place where you got this information, like I could see how there would be multiple kind of possible interpretations, but you're presenting it as fact. Like this interpretation is fact. It was like, yeah, but isn't this the exact same thing that you're pissed off at Plato about? Uh, That's a really good point. Yeah, that's a great point. (laughs) You sort of have to hold it loosely, right? If you're going to. Yeah. If you're going to be coherent there, um, no, that, if, that's a fantastic and, point. And and if you're and if you're specifically making a historical argument, like right. if I if I'm making a meteorological argument, I need to have like some barometer readings yeah, and yeah, yeah. Send, up a, send up a weather balloon and get the temperature gauge going and you know all that stuff. And so if my meteorological argument is I was standing out on the street and I heard these two people talking about the weather and Mm. this is fact it's like well is it (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. do we and and more importantly do we need it to be fact like Mm. i you know in the in the beginning where you talked about his his style where he's always telling you what he's about to tell you Mm. man he he was doing that to me to the last paragraph of the book. I, that's, I wanna, that's a fact. That's a, <laughs> I want to I want to skip ahead to the very end of the book. Screw okay. this whole thing up because okay. it it's not it's not a spoiler or anything. Sure, but right. He right. goes so he goes. All right, let's see here. Um, okay, so this is three paragraphs. You might be tempted to describe the way that Parmenides and the people close to him have been treated in the last 2,000 years as a conspiracy, a conspiracy of silence. And in a very basic sense, you'd be right. But at the same time, all these dramas of misrepresentation, of misabuse and abuse, are nothing compared with what's been done to the central part of his teachings or the writings of his successors. And the drama and the dramas fade away almost into insignificance compared with the extraordinary power of those teachings as they still survive. A power that has been waiting to be understood again and used and not just talked about or pushed aside. 
this is what we'll need to explore next and start rediscovering step by step. And I was like, oh, okay. So everything that's been mentioned so far, Parmenides' opening account of the journey to another world, the traditions about him, the finds at Velia, may seem a story in itself or even a story within a story, but the story is far from finished, and this book that you've come to, that uh, the end of, is only the beginning, the first chapter. And I was like, hell yeah, let's go to that chapter. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's over. Right, right, right. And, and, and so I feel like that this is like, I felt like that part of this book should be like, like, here's what you do with this information. Exactly, and precisely, like we, right. We never got to, give me a chapter of, okay, dude, here's what you do. You go dig yourself up hole in the backyard and you crawl uh-huh. inside of it right. and then you have your spouse cover you with dirt and give you a straw and then, you know uh you know something like yeah. and so uh it feels like uh it feels like it's like when you get to the end of a movie that you think is just a movie but mm-hmm. then you find out it's the beginning of two movies right you're like, you're like oh Shit. well where's the are, are we going to do the thing? It's like, not yet. <laughs> mm-mm, mm-mm. Stay tuned, baby. But yeah, yeah. no, I, I 100% agree with you. I think that you're bringing up a very interesting point, which is that Kingsley is sort of trying to aggressively and concretely tell you that everybody else is wrong, but also that we don't know anything. And that the only concrete thing that we can know is that we know nothing. And he does that through, again, through a lot of his books, you know, um, there's one that's even shorter than this called a story waiting to pierce you. And it's about the Hyperborean, AKA Mongolian origins of, uh, Pythagorean knowledge and the, you know, the kind of symbol of the arrowhead. And there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, but the thing is, uh, yeah, is that there's, there's no real conclusion there, but I mean, I don't want to spend too much time taking a dump on him, but I mean, I think that what, what we can kind of do here is, sort of draw our own conclusions. So there's a lot of, like, I would recommend reading the book if you want to get into all the archaeological details. I don't really think that we want to tread through how exactly he constructs his argument, but he essentially gets to a point uh, where he's talking about um, the concept of incubation, of going into the underworld, and specifically of... um, I, I like this phrase of, a lot of, of, of dying before you die. Can, so can I, can I say yeah. just one yes. thing about yes. the, the historical archeological argument? Yes. You know, I've, I've studied a lot of, um, you know, sort of the history of, of the bronze age and, uh, his, his arguments are entirely credible. I want, yeah. I want to make that clear. Uh, it, it doesn't seem ridiculous it doesn't seem like it's reaching too far. Um, I'm not. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying it sounds credible. And believe me when I tell you that I have read actual books by actual historians from 50 years ago that, in light of what we know today, do not sound credible. So, right. So there's something to be said. Like I, I didn't want to leave the listener with the with the. Um, impression that i did not find him credible as a historian only that his methodology could bear more transparency 
Yeah, no, I think that's that that's completely fair. So what he does again, what he does kind of leave us with is this um, this idea that's very difficult to talk about. And, you know, perhaps that's part of it. Right. We, we said it a little bit earlier, if I'm not mistaken, but there's a real challenge in talking about mystery traditions that, number one, had no written record um, that use metaphor to sort of um, try to explain what they're all about. And then, again, the problem with metaphor, we run into linguistic issues, right? Where we're working about four times removed from ancient Greek, right? <laughs> so there are associations with, with words, with certain uh, images that we as uh, 21st century Americans might not have. But again, there is this, there's this idea of, I'll, I'll just state it as I understand it, and then you can, you know, correct me if I'm wrong or build on it, how, however you choose to do that, right? But like, my understanding of it is that an initiate into one of these mystery traditions would go into a cave. Now, at times there might be a sort of noxious gas that's in the cave. At times they might have maybe smoked a little something, something, perhaps ate a little fungus. Uh, but the idea is that they, well, it's kind of twofold. Number one, when they're not tripping, they are silent. So there's a heavy um, weight put on being quiet. Uh, and then the other thing is to go into a state of incubation where you are under the ground in darkness and you're sort of experiencing what it's like to be dead. Or conversely, back in the womb, right? Which are kind of, you know, two ends of, the, of our little lives here. <laughs> Yeah. Right? Am I am I am I on track so far? Would you yeah, say? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And that the, you know the idea, you know, tying back to what we were talking about, this is a path working, um, is that you you know by you know if you, when you do path working, you know it's always in the context of a ritual, right? Mm -hmm. And so this particular ritual to get to this particular place that they're trying to go. Uh, is is about that um, about that 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 re-entering uh, the womb that as you point out it's like you know that the not being before we were and the not being that awaits us after and that that is a that is a liminal space in which um, you know these uh, entities, gods uh goddesses can communicate with us because that is where they um can be heard mm. uh and this is not not quite a dreamlike state um because in you know and for most people in dreams uh you are very um passive dreams are dreams are just happening to you um it's most people's experience is not of you know lucid dreaming where they're actively sort of generating the the components of the dream but this is a this is a uh, you know a, almost like a hypnagogic um state between waking and sleeping uh where uh wisdom uh can be received 
what do you think that wisdom is? What does that word mean? Well, um, you know, if we go back to, you know, philosophia, the love of wisdom, um, I, I think that it, you know, I, I, I always want to be cautious not to exclude people that don't have a, um, a supernatural worldview. Uh, if you're just asking me what I, you know, what do I think wisdom is, you know, uh, wisdom is something that we receive that is beyond us. Like it's not, it's not, it's not thinking real hard. It's not smarting your way to the solution. It's the the submission to um, external information that is received. It's not demanded. You don't earn it. It's given. Mm-hmm. And and so you know what what is that? Well, you know Parmenides. You know, a lot of his focus is on um, what is eternal, right? And so it's like there, you know, maybe it's like a way of looking at reality that is not um, tempered by the specificities of being human. Uh, If you kind of think about like, you know, we know um, that on some very specific and measurable levels that time does not function the way that we experience it, right? Right, like, right, of course, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, 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 like, we know that. Like, even, you know, modern physics knows that. Like, it's a the foundation uh, of a lot of the current avenues of inquiry is that we're, we're essentially having to translate. It's like, well, this is how the universe works, but this is how our brains work, and mm-hmm. all all we have to work with is our is our brain. So we're having to sort of translate, like, this is how the universe really works, but this is what it looks like to us. And so I think that the core of that wisdom teaching is about the nature of reality. And I think even in the poem, I'm going to try to get back to the clip of it there. Um, She that that's what she says is tells him that uh, um, you. okay. so what is he going to learn? What is needed for you to learn and what is needed for you to learn all things? Both the unshaken heart of persuasive truth which is the reality as it is, and the opinions of mortals in which there's nothing that can truthfully be trusted at all. So to me, it seems like the the teaching is not only this is what reality is actually like, but also here is why human beings can't arrive at that understanding under their own power. Mm-hmm. Like the opinions of mortals in which there's nothing that can truthfully be trusted at all. Right. Uh, so a few things there that is, is interesting to me that I also really like. Um, 
I love this idea that you can't trust <laughs> anything that people say or write down. That works really well for me. Thinking about different, whether they are religious traditions or spiritual tr uh, traditions, it's been my experience uh, moving through them as a Anglo dude in America uh, who, who's into weird shit happens to do, I think, in their spe specifically in their 20s, we do a lot of hopping. Do you know what I mean? Like we kind of, we, we move from thing to thing. And uh, what always lost me in any particular tradition that I was trying to um, sort of function in, and, and I think I've, I've done everything from esoteric Christianity to Buddhism. Uh, I have an Om tattoo. <laughs> so what, what always <laughs> sort it, of... Wait, 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 wait. Is yeah. it in Sanskrit? Is it in... Is, um, no. I want to say no. I don't think so. Oh, oh, wait. Yes, of course. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's not O-M, right? Yeah. Um, no, no, no. So so basically uh, what – I'm going to have to do a lot of editing here to make myself seem less dumb. I don't know what's going on with my brain today. But um, uh, basically what always threw me off with this stuff was the, the, the people who were representing the thing as soon as they started talking, you know? Um, and – that's one of the things that ended up, oddly enough, attracting me to the type of magic that I'm currently into, is that it is extremely experience-based. Um, of course, there are magical traditions that can have, I mean, look at Crowley, for example, right? That guy, he sure did love to, to say the words. But yeah, and I, and and what's interesting is that I've I've found with most people who work within a within a Crowleyan system that like the first great revelation is to stop listening to Alistair Crowley, <laughs> right? Right, and that, exactly. And that, no, hundred percent. Yeah. And that if you and I always get the impression that if you had actually known him, that would have been the first thing he would have told you: don't listen to a single fucking thing that I say. Right, right. Because, I, okay, you know, yeah. it's like, here's a here's a guy who, you know, uh, spent all this money to, to commission the, uh, um, you know, the, the Toth uh, tarot um, and didn't use it. Mm -hmm. he, used, he used the I Ching almost daily and very rarely ever talked about using the tarot uh, and yet wrote an entire book about it as if he was some sort of expert on the topic of the tarot when he didn't use it. Yeah. It's almost so. admirable to have that much, you know, <laughs> just to have the cojones to just be like, you know what? Here's what I think about. Well, I guess we, we see that so much now on Twitter and things of that nature with dudes like explaining things to people um, that it's not quite, it's not really cute anymore. It's like, shut up guys. But, well, uh, but it's yeah. always valuable to put him in a context of a guy who was always trying to turn a buck. Like, yeah. Right. That was just like he started out with a lot of money and then he blew it all mm -hmm. and then he really needed to make more. Like right. Right. any any history of Crowley that you read, it's like, and this is how he was scamming for money this week. And mm -hmm. this, he's, he's sending so-and-so a telegram asking them for 13 quid so that he can, it's like, God, that must yeah. have been exhausting. <laughs> oh, I feel like knowing Crowley would have been extremely exhausting. Um, yeah. Yeah. But 
so basically like when I, when I found the, the, the sort of methods and things that I do now, which is, you know, of course, chaos, magic, animism adjacent, um, it's very, it's very experience based. It's very much like here are the steps now go do it. And then you go do it and weird things happen and you can talk about them if you want to. But as soon as you begin to talk about them, they sort of start to not fall apart, but fade a little bit. So it's, like, it's great. It's, it's, like, it's like this private life that you have. Like, like, And it's in, in my opinion, that's how almost every spiritual tradition really should be. You shouldn't really say shit about it to people. You know? You shouldn't uh, really talk about it. It's like the gap between your enthusiasm to describe a dream that you had and your listeners enthusiasm for hearing about for it. hearing so <laughs> it was it was my it was my mom but not really and yeah. we were at home but it wasn't our home yeah. it was also a 7 and yeah. the people who are listening to you are like bro i'm Please, sure yeah. this was i'm sure this was amazing <laughs> i'm sure this was super tight when you were having they're, the dream but they are praying for death like yeah. <laughs> Like, please, God, let me die. <laughs> well, because the thing about the fucking dream is that you never know when the end is. And it's like, and then it turned out I was, you know, having sex with my with my ex. And you're like, oh, damn. And, the, and then my ex was a crab. And oh, Jesus. I thought I was out, dude. I thought, um, I thought we had gotten to the, to the end of the dream and then it yeah. turned into something else. Yeah. yeah. So that's that I think is really uh, valuable. And if there's something that's sort of interesting to take away from Kingsley's writing here and Parmenides and Pythagoras and all these sort of mysterious um, traditions and mystery traditions, I guess I should say, is that um, there's something to be said for not for not writing any of it down. Or if you do write it down, not really telling very many people about it. I think that's a valuable takeaway, um, not just spiritually, but, you know, being able to have thoughts. So uh, when I take breaks from, from Twitter, I'm gearing up for a week-long Twitter break. I'll, I'll basically be posting this episode and then shutting it off for a week. Um, and and that, that's obviously for lots of different reasons, but there's something really valuable in having a thought in the shower and thinking I'm gonna, I'm, gonna fuck, I'm gonna tweet that and then not having an outlet in which to tweet that thought right it, it's because there's like this uh there's almost this pipeline of you know thought to tweet where uh to dopamine right and and thoughts become commodified in that way if only through the dopamine that's released by people liking them so especially in the year 2020 it becomes quite a challenge to have an amazing thought and sit with it and tell nobody about it and then you sort of see what begins to happen to that thought it sort of starts to to grow like new arms and a weird wonky eyeball right it starts to become like a the beginnings of like a tulpa and I think that thoughts become really like, magically powerful when they become thought forms. And I think that we're like cutting their legs off and throwing them down the tweet chute 
so that we can get the injection of dopamine into our brain <laughs> to uh, to maybe go off the. I don't know if that made any sense, but no, I, I, I you know, uh, in my own experience, uh, the teachers, the spiritual teachers that I've learned the most from, are like, I'm like, here's the thing that I'm interested in. They're like, go do this. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I, be, because you need to. Oh, well, what's going to happen? I don't know. Why don't you go do it and then come back and tell me? And and uh, and so like every you know I I, I you know I, I resonate with that because um, the, it the doing again going back to the path working you know it's you have to walk the path you actually have to walk it you know. Uh, mm-hmm. in order to receive the wisdom you can't just like buy a guidebook about the path and then you've learned what like if you're if you if you skip the doing there's nothing there's nothing there it's it's the dream that that, you, that your friend won't stop telling you about mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know my teacher uh, said something that really resonated with me which was that uh, um, we love to um, believe what other people tell us in relation to spiritual uh, practices because it demands nothing of us. And so if somebody's like, you know, oh, the, you know, the whole universe is a giant turtle, you know, and it's turtles all the way down. It's like, great. Where, cool. do, I, where do I send my $10 to the turtle? <laughs> and, uh, and because... You know, uh, it asks nothing of us. Like, we don't have to change our life. We don't have to change our behavior. We don't have to change our thinking. We're just like, yeah, okay, that that sounds as plausible as anything else. I'll go with that. Um, Whereas uh, we are very disinclined to believe our own experiences. Mm, And so if you, you, uh, you know, I... I think it was Crowley who said that uh, if you don't believe in the power of ritual, I think some. I think he was being sensitive about uh, being accused of being a cosplayer, and he was like, "If you if you don't believe in the power of ritual, I would recommend that you go to a, a, a you know a, a place far away from people uh, in the middle of the night um, on a, a on a new moon." And recite the Lord's Prayer uh, from, you know, from from the the bottom of your being. And if you don't get freaked out by the power of that, um, I'll be really surprised. Like that 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 ritual, the doing, um, is more important than the content uh, of the ritual itself. Yeah, yeah, that's and that goes back to the, you know, the experiential nature of it. That's so funny. That reminds me of this uh, theo- this Catholic theologian uh, named Peter Rollins, who's really I really enjoy listening to his uh, podcast. But he had had this experiment once where he was talking to a crowd that was most mostly atheists, and he was like, "Well, you all believe in God, though." And they said, no, of course we don't. He said, well, you believe in something. You believe in ghosts or demons. And they all said, no. He said, oh, okay, well, fine. So what I've done is I've brought a, you know, uh, a witch here 
to recite this curse. I have this curse on this piece of paper. Uh, would anybody like to be cursed by this witch? Right. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> and there no no volunteers. No volunteer. Well, actually, he said there was a volunteer, and he then he felt bad, so he was like, "Well, curse me instead." And they went through the whole thing. But again, a crowd with just one person who's willing to do that, it says a lot, right? There's, and that kind of, that kind of thing can't be overlooked. This idea that when somebody says, "Hey, would you let this witch curse you?" So there's something that stirs in our in our being that is should shouldn't be ignored. Yeah. That is like there's there's something to that, because if it was easy to do, then you'd have a really good point. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, um, is there anything else that you wanted to bring up about this this book? Because we have we've hit our hour, and uh, I think that we've done a pretty good job talking about this thing. Um, it's it's a real it's really interesting, um, especially if someone is. Like uh, I, I've been interested in Pythagoras for a long time, and there's a lot of parallels um, between Pythagoras and Parmenides, um, and it was it was interesting to see how um, a lot of the you know untestable hypotheses that I have about Pythagoras and what it is that he actually knew and what it is that he actually taught. Um, were that that Kingsley arrived at very similar destinations um, in in talking about uh, about Parmenides um, mm. and and so like I, I think if someone is you know broadly interested in uh, Pythagoranism uh, the Kabbalah um, you know what um, influence that uh, uh, Egyptian um, teachings uh, had on kind of the Greek mystical tradition. Um, man, I think there's a lot of meat uh, in here that they'll that they'll really enjoy. Um, and I feel like that if if I go through, um, you know, if I went through other books that Kingsley has written specifically on the topics of like stillness and meditation, and um, I feel like that the, the that this was an important book for him to write so that he could write other things. Right. Um, and, and so that doesn't, that doesn't make it um, flawed. It just makes it part of a body of work and from which we extracted kind of one, one piece. Great. Well, Rob, as always, thanks very much for your time. I had a great time reading this and uh, talking about it. Thank you.